All right, um, John chapter 5 is where we are. So we're working our way through the Gospel of John, and you can follow along if you wish. Let me pray real quick. Father, as we approach your word, we ask for understanding. We pray that the Spirit of God would uh, speak to our hearts to illuminate our minds, to understand the depth of what's really here for us. And we pray that we would grasp it um, well. I don't think any of us can grasp today fully, but we pray that you will help us to go a little deeper into the, your relationship with your son in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, I was reading Psalm 139 this week and where David is contemplating the infinite nature of God, right? His power, his presence, his knowledge of all things. And, and David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. And that's how I feel looking at John chapter 5. <laughs> it's, uh, it's above me. It's actually too high. And um, I'm not the only person that feels that way. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who I like to read, he's, uh, he was a 19th century bishop in England, but awesome guy. But he said, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, he says, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. Wow. So I hope you pay attention. <laughs> it's our privilege to look at that this morning. And like I say, we can only do it with humility because uh, it is lofty. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. The, the Trinity is a mystery anyway. Uh, you say some, explain to me the Trinity, and they might give you a technical theological definition, but to really understand it is extraordinarily, it's above us, it's too high, we cannot attain to it. But it is what the Bible teaches uh, very clearly, and we'll see that today. We can't grasp it, but with words that scripture gives us, we can talk about it and say true things about the Trinity, even if we can't fully grasp it, okay? So technically, John 5 isn't Trinitarian because the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in it. Jesus is going to talk about him later on in the gospel. But John 5 is Trinitarian in the sense that it deals specifically and directly with the nature of God the Father and the Son and how they relate to one another. So it's Trinitarian because Jesus is going to explain, and he's explaining it to his enemies um, in words we can just begin to grasp but that are there for us how there can be one God and more than one person in the Godhead. How can, how can God be more than one person but there be one God? It's really that issue. How they relate to each other is, like I say, beyond our comprehension. But what Jesus says here is probably as close as we can get. So we're going to take our shot here. It is very helpful. He uses simple words. John always is using simple words when he's writing. But um, the concepts are really lofty. So... It might help to actually think back to chapter 1, um, verse 17 and 18, which says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So calling the Messiah, calling Jesus the only begotten God, and then saying that he's in the bosom of the Father, 
We talked about that when we were in chapter one quite a bit, but those are significant thoughts. The only begotten God exists in a close, intimate, personal relationship with the Father eternally. He's held in his bosom, which is exactly where you carry a baby, right? And someone you love dearly, or I think we talked about the analogy of uh, when you embrace your wife, she lays her head on your bosom, if, if you're taller than she is. But um, your, your children hug you and they lay their head there. You know, that's the, that's, the, that's, that's the kind of relationship Christ has with the Father eternally, eternally. He is uncreated. He wasn't made, right? So, um, John 5 is the one important place where Jesus explains this relationship in great detail. So let me just kind of set the scene. If you weren't here last Sunday, this is what led to this conversation with the, the, the rabbis, I guess, the leadership of Israel in the temple. So this takes place in the temple, this conversation. Remember, there was a man laying on some bedding under a porch at the pool of Beth. Bethesda where many, a multitude of people were laying there ill and trying to get into the waters there because there was a mythological idea that if they could beat everybody else to the water when it moved funny they, they'd be healed and he could never get there right so this is right outside the gate of Jerusalem the pool of Bethesda which archaeologists have uncovered it's we know quite a bit about it but according to rabbinical law with very few exceptions it was a sin to carry anything on the Sabbath and guess what day it was? Yeah, it was Saturday. So, yeah, it was a Sabbath day. And Jesus doesn't just heal this man. Um, he, he tells him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. So this man who had spent 38 years as an invalid suddenly feels completely well. And he gets up and he picks up his, this bedding that he was laying on there. And he starts carrying it. Don't do that. Now, this is not a Bi- the Bible says not to labor on the Sabbath, like do business and go out in your field and do all that. But it doesn't say you can't pick up something and walk with it. It doesn't say that. But the rabbis said that. That was a, a long-standing rabbinical rule. They had all these extra rules they piled on top of the Bible. So Jesus heals him. He's, he, he's starting to walk with his pallet, and Jesus leaves. He goes off through the crowd into the temple to minister to other people. So the rabbis saw him carrying it, and in verse 11 it says, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Verse 11, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. So Jesus told this guy to do something that he knew would break the Sabbath rules that men had added on top of what Moses had said. So so Jesus becomes a villain for that. So verse 16 For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus defends himself. He defends his actions with, I guess you would call it a bombshell. Verse 17, he answered, my father is working until now and I myself am working. So we talked about that one last week. And they go, Again, that technical term, the Latin word, bonkers. They go bonkers. <laughs> no, not really, but they go bonkers about this. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they hated him, because he was a blasphemer. He was making himself equal with God. So, There's the phrase right there, equal with God. What man would dare to 
say that he was equal with God, or in this case, hint at he was equal with God. It's a sin worthy of death. Now, if Jesus wasn't saying that he was equal with God, he easily could have explained that right there, right? He could have said, no, guys, fellas, fellow rabbis, I didn't mean that. Come on. I just meant that I'm doing God's will. You do God's will. We all are with God in all of this, right? That's all I meant. That's all I was saying, that I was working because the Father's working. He could have said that, but he didn't. Instead, he gives them this long discourse on why he actually is equal with God, which isn't going to make him particularly popular, but it's wonderful for us to read what he, what he said to them that day. So it's an amazing explanation of the relationship, the relationship between God the Father, the eternal creator, and God the Son, who is the eternal creator as well. Because in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says that, he, that it was the, the word was with God, the word um, was God, and he made everything. Nothing came into being apart from him, right? Nothing. He invented everything. He created everything. So he's just so much the creator. Just right there, you've got the Trinity in John chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He is God and with God in the beginning, right? So there's a relationship between the word and God, two, two persons, but the word is God as well. So John starts the gospel with that. But now here's Jesus actually saying something like that to the rabbis in the temple. So that's what we're going to see. And Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He's as clear as can be. It's amazing, actually. There's so much here. And it's laid out in really two main sections because there's a shift in verse 30. So we're going to be starting in the middle of chapter 5. But when you get down to verse 30, it, it, the subject changes to witnesses. What's the proof? What witnesses there that you're like this. So he's going to talk about that later. We'll get to that later. Today we're going to start on the first half and we probably won't make it all the way through, but we're going to get a, a running start at it, okay? So we're in verse 19 through 30. That's, the, that's where this discourse is. And Jesus begins with the double amen, right? We talked before, whenever he says truly, truly in John's gospel, the Greek word actually is amen, amen. That's, that's what Jesus says when he's telling you something that's not just true, he's not going to tell you something false, but it's super true. It's like really important true for you. So when he says verily, verily, or truly, truly, that kind of a thing depends on how your translation does it. But the actual thing is amen, amen. It is so, it is so, that kind of an idea. So everything he says is true, but this is super true. So watch, as we kind of work our way through this text, watch for certain key things there. Um, one of them is the word life, because Jesus speaks of it often. We'll probably talk more about that next week, but he mentions it today as well. But mainly, I want you to grasp and look at the relationship between him and the Father. That's what it's all about here. Very unique. You know, the conception of God in Christianity is utterly unique. There's nothing like it. One God in three persons. That's, that, that's what makes it Christianity. Also, I want you to notice in this discourse, there's, there's two cannots that Jesus talks about. Two can'ts. Can'ts as in cannot, right? The one is right at the beginning in verse 19 and the other one is way at the end at verse 30. So there's things that God the Son and Jesus is speaking of himself that he cannot do. So that's how we start. So look at verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So truly, truly, it's an absolute truth. The Son can do nothing of himself. That's a really important concept there. He does what he sees the Father doing. In other words, he's saying, I am not acting independently. I am not independent of the Father. I'm never going to do something that the Father isn't doing or wanting me to do. So that's the key first point there that he makes there. He does what he sees the Father doing. Anything Jesus does is in perfect alignment with what the Father desires. It's never against the Father's will. It's always what God wants him to do. So in heaven, in eternity, before there ever was a creation of the universe, the Father and the Son were together in perfect unity. They share, they actually share the same divine nature. And in the incarnation, the Son becomes true man without diminishing his deity in any way. He becomes God-man, not just God anymore, but he's Adds, he adds humanity to himself. And the Father and the Son still share that divine nature after he adds humanity to himself. In other words, he doesn't divest himself of that. He's still God, but he's adding a true human nature to his person. So that divine nature belongs only to God. But to come among us, the Son adds this true human nature to the divine and becomes the perfect, obedient man, right? Got with me so far? Good, okay. So as a man, the son maintains, he maintains perfect unity with the father that he had in eternity past. So Jesus, the word, becomes flesh, John 1.14. He created the universe, and that person that created the universe becomes flesh. Nothing has been made that he didn't make, and yet here Jesus himself states that he doesn't go about doing whatever he wants. He does only what he sees the Father doing. There's no rivalry. There's no difference between them. There's no independent action even on his part. Only perfect unity with the Father. So when he said to these rabbis, my Father is working and I am working, he's not declaring independence from the Father. Like, hey, well, I'm the Son of God. I can do whatever I want. That's not what he's saying at all. It's, it's the intimate eternal unity in every way imaginable that existed in heaven with the Father before the creation of the world that he still has with him. That's what he's saying. The Son does nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. He literally cannot do something of himself since he and the Father are so close in purpose and intent and manner and any other way you can think of. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4 um, to the Samaritans, to the disciples in Samaria. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, right? You hunger for something, you've got to have it. That's how he is about doing the Father's will. He always does the Father's will. John 4.34. The work of Jesus is exactly the same as what the Father is doing. So in the incarnation, the only difference between the Father and the Son is that the Father is the sender and the Son is the one sent. That's the difference. Other than that, they're completely unified in everything. They have perfect harmony. So it is verily true. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. What he's saying here. So take up your pallet and walk. Saying that to a, the lame man is perfectly in line with the Father's will. That's what he's saying. 
Okay, so naturally man-made rules aren't going to tell God what he can do or not do on a given day. Jesus always kept the Sabbath. He obeyed the Sabbath, but he didn't obey their extra Sabbath rules. He didn't have any obligation to do that because of who he is. And there's more here. Jesus goes on in verse 20 to explain the unity of the Son with the Father. There's no compulsion. There's no obligation that he feels like, oh, I've got to do the Father's will today. It's deeper than that and it's stronger than that. The root of the Father-Son in relationship. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So the Father shares all things with the Son. Why? He loves him. He loves him. And that love is eternal. It's been there forever because God is forever. And they've been together forever. That's who God is, Father, Son. So we get a sense of this love on kind of a human level. You know, if you think of an apprenticeship between a father and a son or ownership or shared authority, something like that, with with joy and affection, a human father teaches his son the family business, right? We're We're talking human level now, right? And Jesus had that experience. He was a carpenter. Who taught him? His dad, right? Joseph was a carpenter. His son's a carpenter. In those days, you pretty much did whatever dad did. You didn't go, I wonder what I want to be. It's like you just carried on the family business, whatever it was. Almost everybody did that. So what did Joseph do? He trained him in the properties of wood and all the interesting things about wood and uh, his tools, how to use the tools and what they did, his technique, how he put things together, how he made things, all of that, everything the father knew, he taught his son, right? So the son shares in the knowledge of all of it and he fulfills his role in it. God the father has infinite knowledge and a plan for all of humanity and a destiny where everything is going, heading towards eternity. Everything's going that way. And the son shares in that knowledge. All of it. Yes, he knew how to make things out of wood as a man. But as God, he knows all of that. The father's plan, everything that's going on. They share that together and he's fulfilling his role. Some of that plan is already beginning to be seen in what Jesus is doing, like healing that man, his miracles, just occurred. It just happened in the temple. And Jesus says in verse 20, greater works are coming. And the greatest, of course, is going to be his resurrection from the dead, which will change the destiny of millions and millions of people by bringing them eternal life. And it actually changes the course of human history that he rose from the dead. So within the Trinity, there's this shared knowledge of everything And Paul actually talks about the Holy Spirit with regard to that as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. That sounds great. For to us God revealed him through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So the Spirit can search the depths of God. How can the Spirit do that? How can any thing plumb the depths of God because the Holy Spirit is God right same with the Son of God the Father tells him all things and he can receive all things because he has the same nature as God like the Spirit the Son has the capacity to take all of it in 
because he's God himself. He's God the Son. Here's a few examples here. First, only God can grant life to the dead. Verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Look, you have to be God to do what only God can do. Just think about it. That's a true statement. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. That's a Wayne Wilson statement, though. But only, only, you have to be God to do what only God can do, right? It's just a very simple idea. And to know what God knows, and he does here. So these verbs in verse 21, they're all present tense verb. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even, the so, even so the son gives, that means continuously gives, life to whom he wishes. It's a continuous action. So it's an ongoing reality, and so is the love in verse 20. And the showing in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The love is continuous. It's eternal. It's always going on. And the showing is continuous. It's always going on. It's eternal. So it is in verse 21 with the granting of life. Just as the father raises the dead, continually raises the dead, does this whole process and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whomever he wishes. He's continuously doing that. They both do it. So the granting of life in this particular verse is almost certainly spiritual life. You know, there's two kinds of life. There's physical life and spiritual life. And we're talking probably here spiritual life, it sounds like. He is going to talk about physical life, a physical resurrection in verse 28. But at this point, I think he's talking about spiritual life. Awakening a sinner like you and me, right? Bringing us from death, spiritual death, to newness of life. Giving us a new heart. It says in the Old Testament that God will take out the stony heart, right, and give you a heart of flesh. He'll, he, he will write his law on your heart. That's new life. That's what the Bible um, calls being born again. We, in theology, they call it regeneration. It's this new life that comes. That's what he's talking about here. The father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the son gives life to whom he wishes. It's an incredible thing. So Jesus is doing just what the father does, and it's, the greatest miracle of all, raising the dead, spiritually dead people to new life where we, oh, I see, I understand, I accept, I follow, I know the Lord. It's the greatest of miracles. So we come to know God through this quickening of the heart, this awakening, this life being given to us by God. It's often described as the work of the Father, but it's also what Jesus describes his own work in the same way. In fact, Matthew chapter 11, this isn't just in John's gospel. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Jesus is really clear about his authority with regard to the granting of life. He says, he says there, Matthew eleven twenty-seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now look, Jesus had friends, right? Well, I know, I know Jesus. He's been around for years. No, it's really knows him, truly knows him. Only the Father knows him. Nor does anyone know the Father, he says, except the Son. And then he says this amazing thing. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So he's saying the Son can choose to reveal the Father to certain individuals on earth. And that's exactly what he does. That's what the Father does. That's what God promised. Now God in the Old Testament is the Trinity, but that's what God promised to do, to take out the heart of stone and give people a heart of flesh. So 
It is the son who wills in Matthew 11 who chooses to reveal the knowledge of father to certain people. And again, only God can do that. Only God can do that. The giving, giving of life, spiritual life, is a divine action. You can share the gospel with somebody, but you can't give them life. He has to do that. He has to work in that way. And the son does it even as, he says, the father does it. Even as the father does. Now, guess what? He's not done yet. What about God's right to judge all rational creatures, to judge all of mankind? What about that? Verse 22 of John chapter 5. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now, a good Jew would understand that all judgment is in God's hands. Only he has that authority and the power and the knowledge to do that. He alone is the judge. But here we see that Jesus says the Father judges men through the Son. He gives the task to his Son. That's another thing that only God can do, right? So, well, you know, Paul in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, he says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In case you were wondering who that man was. So the Father will judge the world through His Son. But only God can do that, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. He is equal in power and authority and wisdom. John Phillips, in his commentary, described this better than I could, so I want to read what he says. But just think of how infinite in knowledge the judge of the world has to be, right? So he says, quote, the fact that the Lord Jesus is the universal judge means that he has personal knowledge of all the countless human beings in all the ages of history. He has detailed acquaintance with the endless variety of circumstances of each and every individual. He knows the character of each one of us. He knows our motives, opportunities, hidden passions, mental ability, thoughts, desires, words, acts. He knows the lasting influence for better or for worse of our every act or look. Moreover, he has a perfect grasp of all the laws of God by which to judge the world. He has the right to pass eternal sentence with no court of appeal and no cases missed. In other words, the Lord was claiming in no uncertain terms to be God over all. And that's the only way you could interpret what he's saying. That he, he's going to be the judge. It's exactly right. It's, it's an astounding claim for a human being to make. Unless it's true. Then it's still astounding, but it's true. Look, here's a guy. He's a common Jew, right? From a very obscure village of a subject people under foreign domination. And he's claiming to be the judge of the world. Of all people. He's a carpenter's son, but all judgment has been given to him. It's just incredible, the claim. And the men he's talking to who wish to kill him know that he just made a man who'd been a cripple for 38 years completely well. They know that. So they've got to take what he's telling them with what just happened. That's why he's doing it. That's why he's saying it now. He's presenting the case to them. There's more. 
that Jesus has to say. So he's actually answering these questions. Why would God give such great authority to this man? Because that's what people are seeing before them, a man, right? And he was a true human being. Why does the Father give so much greatness to the Son that he would judge the world and be the one that everyone's accountable to? How could that even be? So verse 23, very important words. The first two words are the most important. So that. When you see that phrase in Greek, it's a purpose clause. So this is the purpose for God giving all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Equal honor to the Son. Equal honor, even as they honor the Father. That word translated even as means in the same degree, equal proportion, uh, or you could just say more simply, just as. You are to honor the Son just as you honor the Father. Equal honor with God. That's what the Father wants for His Son. That's His purpose for this, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How can that be? How can that be? In a Jewish understanding of, the, of God, He's unique. He's alone. There's only one, right? His oneness is everything. How many texts in the Bible, if you read through the Old Testament, how many texts in the Bible do you find where it declares and emphasizes that only God can do this? There's only one God and only He can create the world. Only He can do all the things that He does. There's so many of them and so many passages are running through my head. I was thinking, I got to pick one. God has no rivals. God has no equals. There are no other gods. It says over and over again in the Old Testament. And so here's the text I landed on. Isaiah 45 verse 20. You can listen or just turn there if you want to. But God is speaking. And God says, gather yourselves and come. Draw near together you fugitives of the nations. He's talking to all these people. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. So he's talking to them about all this idol, idolatry they've been doing. And the Jews were steeped in idolatry too back then in Isaiah's day. So he's, talking, he's inviting them to come. He says, you come, that you that worship these wooden idols, and declare and set forth your case. Verse 21. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old and who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Then he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. That's Isaiah 45, 20 through 24. That passage from Isaiah just stands out because it plainly says, I am God and there is no other. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Now if you know your Bible, or if you were listening to Mike earlier this, today, he read Philippians chapter 2, 
What does that say about Christ? You remember what it says? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Equal honors with the Father. Well, how can that be after what Isaiah said? Well, you know, Isaiah said some other interesting things too, like in Isaiah chapter 9, the famous Handel's Messiah verse. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah seemed to think the Messiah was going to be all that, all that God is. So those titles that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 9-6 are giving equal honors to the Messiah, the son of David, a human being, a man that are given to God. So how can it be that a man should have that kind of honor? Well, the, the son is God. That's why. That's the answer. He's not another God. He is one of the persons that is God. He's in the being of God. He's, he is God nature. He is divine in every way. That's why John's gospel begins the way it does. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And that's where the Trinity comes from. All these things we're talking about. It's inescapable. Is it easy to understand? No. But it's inescapably what the Bible teaches. So when John says in chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. There we have God incarnate. God in flesh, all of God's nature, all of it in a man, the fullness of God, but only the person of the Son became human. And if God became a man for the purpose of purchasing our salvation with his blood, then it's only fitting, it's only right. No, it's more than, it's more than right. It's a moral necessity that Jesus, the Son, be honored as the Father is honored, that they share equal honors. So the real question is, how can equally honoring him be withheld? How can we not give him equal honors with the Father based on who he is, the eternal Son who gave his life for us? Jesus of Nazareth is equally God, without limits, and equal in authority and power and glory, and we will all bow the knee to him. That's what the father wants because he loves his son. That's what it says. And then we come to verse 23 again, the the, the second line there. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You say, well, I don't like that. I think Jesus was just a man. You can't honor the Father if you don't honor His Son because He wants you to honor His Son. You can't have the Father unless you have the Son. The Father won't have it. And I know we live in a pluralistic age and those words sting some people, you know, because many people today don't cling to what is true. They cling to what feels good, right? In our culture, we believe in belief in our culture, right? As long as you believe in something, that's good, you know. But that's not how the Bible reads it. We believe in belief, but we don't believe in the one that we're supposed to believe in, not the living God. 
American culture presents God as kind of a therapist or a, a warm blanket or an invisible friend, right? Someone to tell our troubles to. And maybe just now and then he'll work something out to kind of relieve our troubles a little bit. That's pretty much who he is for the average American, I think. But it doesn't matter if our God is a toned down version of the Bible's God or if he's Allah or Krishna or just sort of a vague deity, the big man upstairs as men used to like to call God. In our culture, God is someone who thinks just like us. What an amazing thing. I'm so fortunate that God thinks just like me, right? We make God in our image, right? That won't wash. You, you can't do any of that. You, you didn't make the world, so you, didn't get, you don't get to decide about all of those kind of things. Your fancies and your preferences can't be the world you live in. You can live in it in your mind, but that's not the world that exists just because you want things a certain way. You can't do that. You didn't make the world. It's God's world. He made it. It's interesting, you know, the, the, the holy book. Have you ever read the Quran? If, uh, I read it years ago, the Muslim holy book. It says over and over again that God cannot have a son. And it says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. So the idea that one must honor the son to honor the father who sent him puts an irreconcilable divide between the truth and all these other religious ideas that are out there whether they're old religions or whether they're modern people just thinking up and making up things as they go along. You cannot deny the deity of Christ and have the Father. You cannot know God and have a relationship with God unless you know his Son. Pure contradictions cannot both be true. Jesus is God's Son who became our Savior. And God's plan for man's salvation hinges on Jesus dying on the cross as the Passover lamb. God's plan was to bear the penalty himself for our sin because we can't atone for our own sin. We're just guilty. So he sent God the Son to do that very thing. And he volunteered to do it. The Father didn't come. The Son came. The Spirit didn't come to bear sins. The Son came. So the Father not only loves the Son, but he loves fallen, weak, sinful, wicked human beings so much that he sent his son for us. His love is so great, his son volunteered to pay our debt to divine justice. And that's why from the cross he cried out, why have you forsaken me? That was our forsakenness that he was bearing in that moment. What we deserved, he was carrying. He fully paid the debt, fully. And we have to belong to him to be restored to the Father. And that comes by faith, right? Only faith. You can't atone for yourself. You have to have faith in the one who did. So let me close with um, Jesus' second truly, truly statement. Then we'll wrap this up here. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. It's God's gift. It's a gift of grace, eternal life. He purchased it for us. All we are called upon to do is put our faith in him as our Savior and our Lord, God the Son. And through him we come to the Father. And then he takes it from there and starts to work on you. Let's pray.
our great God who exists in three persons. We know you are love because you loved before the universe began. You loved the Son and the Spirit eternally before the world even was. It's your nature to love because that love was already present before creation. And how great that love is that we see in the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord, as he paid the debt we owe to your justice. Father, may our hearts be filled with joy always in your Son. And may we honor him in the same way we honor you because that pleases you. In his name we pray, amen.